The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about the 5R protocol. Remove, replace, re-inoculate, repair, rebalance. Wow, that was fast. Well done. It's written on the board behind you. Oh, right. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Are you getting sick of this song yet? No, I'm never sick of this song. Yeah, it's... um. It's a testament to the song. We're at 68 and we're still... Hello! Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm doing so well, Great. thank you. Great. Good to hear it. Awesome. Welcome to our show, The Lab Report. It's a podcast. It's actually okay. a podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. And today, what are we talking about? We're talking about the 5R protocol, kind of one of the tenets of functional medicine. We're not talking about your back? We're not. You want to tell the audience what happened with I, your back? I pulled a muscle hair drying my hair this morning. The ex- I think this speaks to my advancing strenuous age. Strenuous activity <laughs> of drying one's hair. Listen, times are tough, okay? I'm not judging. I'm sorry to hear it. Maybe we should remind people that they could go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to this podcast and you hear all about my hair drying, <laughs> harrowing experience. You can rate and review and leave us some stars there. That's right. And if you have any feedback on how best to realign a rib, because we tried that uh, this morning and didn't that, work. that didn't work. So maybe you can send that feedback to podcast at gdx.net. It's where you can reach us. Yeah. Um, and uh, without further ado, let's get into today's, get into today's topic. There. Yeah. So you mentioned the 5R protocol, but it used to be the 4R Protocol. I know, right? Suddenly we're, they're we're adding, adding R's. Adding R's. Should we add another one today? I think we absolutely should add another R. At least one. All right, great. I mean, <laughs> there's plenty of R words out there. <laughs> we can find some to add. But like that rib? being said, <laughs> yes, <laughs> like rip. That being said, uh, let's. I think it might be fun to not only just talk about 4R or 5R. Right. But also to crosswalk it with how you can evaluate for these things. Oh, because okay. You know, I don't, when working up a patient, everyone's going to have, we talk about personalized medicine. Not everyone's going to need all four or all five of the R's. I know it. We, we sometimes talk about this like a protocol, like you start with step one and you work your way mm-hmm. through the protocol. But in life, I don't think it always has to be like that. And I don't think that always is the best approach for the patient either. Yeah. And that kind of goes against functional medicine in general, right? Yeah. And although this is one of the basic tenets of how to start working with your patients, this quote unquote five R protocol, they don't have to go in sequential order and everyone's different. Right. 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 So it really depends on the situation. Right. And you're not going to use that that one same protocol from a therapeutic intervention standpoint on all the same people, too. Like some people you're going to give digestive enzymes and and bitters and another person you're going to give bile salts. So So it's going to be different just within each R category. So So we're talking about the best way to fix your gut and to optimize gut health. And that's what the 5R protocol was designed to do, to give you a place to start. And to Michael's point, not everyone follows the same pattern. So let's just kind of lay them out. And although we're laying them out sequentially, understand that they may not always go in this order. Yeah. And so 
We're starting with the premise that we've already discovered and uncovered that somebody has GI issues. Maybe they've got IBS. Maybe they've run a GI test, and mm-hmm. you've discovered a lot of issues there. So that's that. Now it's sort of like, what do you do? Right. This is what we're talking about. What what do you do from an intervention standpoint, right? That's right. And you may have already run a GI effects comprehensive stool well, profile. Of course, you have to help you <laughs> to help guide some of this. Yes. But if we run through the actual five. Yeah. Let's talk about the first one. Let's get started. Let's roll right into it. What is the first R? Well, the first one is this general word, remove. Okay. Remove. Right. Remove what? Exactly. So when I think about patients and having GI issues, the things we're going to talk about removing are, it's kind of like naturopathic medicine. Remove the obstacle to cure. Ooh, bringing it back, Michael Chapman. That's one of our main tenets, removing the obstacle to cure. And in this circumstance, in the GI tract, you have to identify what the obstacle to cure is and remove it. And so that could be something as simple and straightforward as a bug. Right. Um, Or it could be something that's a little bit more uh, tricky, a little bit more insidious, like a food sensitivity Mm -hmm. or a food allergy. Um, Or even just cleaning up your diet, like removing processed foods and artificial sweeteners and, and things like that. That might be triggering underlying dysfunction. I mean, you certainly would want to remove these things, of course. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you know whether the processed food intake is actually causing the GI dysfunction, we can make some leaps. We can say, in general, it's good to remove processed food, sure. But, you know, you're going to say that anyway. Well, in my head, I'm thinking in order to remove something like a pathogen or a food that you may be allergic to, there would have already been some type of testing yeah. underway. Like Agreed. Like GI effects or Agreed. a food antibody profile. Yeah, and I think that's a great place to start, especially if you're working somebody up for GI issues, is starting with a GI effects stool test, and maybe even if you're getting further insight, working your way into a food sensitivity, food allergy test, and that's going to give you these ideas. When we're talking about remove, here's one, I guess, uh, pet peeve. Is we're always removing things. I know. We're, I feel so sorry for these patients. We're it's always like, removing you things. You can't have this and you can't have that. And so, like, let's be a little bit f- more focused mm-hmm. and use the testing to figure out what exactly needs to be removed because we're always talking about health as, like, a stepwise process. And so if you if they leave with a treatment plan of 25 different items and, you know, 24, 25, and 23, 24, 25 are remove processed foods, remove soda, and remove coffee, you know, it's like... You're not necessarily hitting their GI concern. You might be you might be t- touching it in a roundabout way, but you're not getting to the root cause. And it's somewhat disheartening to patients, right? Like the way you're going to start to treat them is to tell them all of the things that they can't have, yeah. all the things they can't do. Right. So if you test, there may be a definitive answer there that you can have a more targeted approach so it's not yeah. to really discourage them. So with respect to the R, the first R and the 5R, protocol, which is remove, I tend to think more so GI specific. So I think of parasites, pathogens, things that are going to be causing uh, either inflammation or just general disruption to the GI tract. Okay. So let's hypothetically say we get a GI effects stool profile Yeah, and there's a blatant pathogen on there like salmonella or aromonas and you have a patient with loose stool or diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a patient that is symptomatic 
and you find that, then you're obviously going to be treating, right? Especially mm -hmm. if it's a true pathogen like the ones you mentioned. I might be leaning a little bit more towards our actual pharmaceutical agents to address this to get some quick resolve. Now, a lot of them are actually self-limiting. Salmonella tends to be self-limiting, although there are some patients where we tend to see it linger for longer periods of time, and even some patients where it might not even be causing symptoms, which is a very strange presentation for that. But um, in those circumstances, I might be a little bit more willing to negotiate with a botanical agent agent as compared to a pharmaceutical agent, we might differ in that opinion. Well, I come from the conventional world. Correct. And so in my mind, if it's a big heavy hitter pathogen and a patient symptomatic, I reach for the pharmaceutical. But again, yeah, yeah. understanding that some of our clients don't have prescriptive rights and yeah. they're more used to using botanical agents, which also work. Yeah. It's really just a level of comfort. And I was more so talking about patients who maybe even have a, a salmonella and are asymptomatic. Like right. I said, it's pretty rare that we see that, but it has happened from time to time. Would you still approach it the same way? No. I, I always go back to the patient's symptoms. Yeah. And so again... We have some resources on our website about the specific pathogens and different bacteria, and some of them are self-limiting. And if a patient has had some type of a GI symptom that caused you to get the test, and now they re represent your office and they're feeling much better, and it's a self-limiting bacteria, then you can feel pretty comfortable that you wouldn't have to aggressively treat them. What's your thought on this? Say uh -oh. they, right, we're still talking about removing things, right? What about yeast? What if you see a yeast on, on the culture analysis of a GIFX test on your stool test. Mm -hmm. What do you think as far as removing that? Are you going to remove that in every circumstance? What, what's the deal there? I would say no. And again, it's patient specific. I know you love that answer. But remembering that our GI tract actually has a mycobiome. So some yeast live there and mm. they need to be there. So just because someone has a yeast grout in culture doesn't mean you need to aggressively treat it. Yeah, I, I agree with and that. And some of it is dietary intake. If they have a high sugar intake or you know, a lot of sweets right. that can promote some of that. So an intervention might be something as simple as cutting back on wine and sugars and breads. Yep. And that would be root cause. I think that's a much better approach than going in with heavy weaponry and wiping out, <laughs> weaponry. <laughs> wiping out a bunch it's of very the ominous. bacteria, <laughs> disrupting the microbiome, especially if we're unsure whether it's causing symptoms or not in this particular patient, which is, I think it's a, it's a far cry from, where we used to be with this topic. That's right. With the whole yeast topic. And I think it's time that we came out and we put the brakes, pump the brakes uh -huh. on the the whole over-treatment of yeast. I agree. It's a big problem. I agree. And we're disrupting microbiomes. We've seen it time and time again working here where you go in with antimicrobial agents, whether they're pharmaceutical or botanical, and you're increasing the likelihoods of there being a potential pathogen. And I think now's the time. This is the platform. Wow. Ring in the bell. <laughs> we're going to say, all right, stop Taking with a the over-treatment of yeast. Right. All right. So let's pivot just a little bit on this remove topic. I'm getting older. I don't pivot as I quickly know, as I used to. Really yeah. getting really cantankerous over there about the yeast issue. But let's hypothetically say we've done testing and there's an elevation of eosinophil protein X or you've done food antibody testing and there's some positive findings there. Yeah. We talk about removing those. Sure. So what, what would you say to that? This is, again, the idea of removing the obstacle to cure. If you are consuming something that is regularly causing immune response, immune activation, or inflammation in the GI tract, you have to remove that before anything else good can happen from a gut repair standpoint. So here we're talking about an elimination diet. If you have the details around what foods are most likely causing the immune response or activation, then that's a good place to start with an elimination diet. I think here's the truth. 
the gold standard is the the traditional elimination diet where we're talking about the removing the big five corn wheat soy egg and dairy this is the this is your standard elimination diet this is if you don't have any information on a food sensitivity test and you're just going to get put somebody on an elimination diet those are the five you want to start with okay so let's flip it then let's say you did do food antibody testing and we know that if you re- we kind of go back to our our food reactions episode, yeah. we know that anything that's found in an IgE food antibody panel is a true allergy and should be removed for life. Yes. Yeah. For life. And we also talked about how there are IgG reactions, which are food sensitivities. Yeah. And oftentimes we kind of use that test to kind of say, could there be intestinal permeability or not? Yeah. And we can use that IgG food sensitivity panel to help guide an elimination diet in a little bit more targeted way. Yeah. So I'm looking for what's causing major reactions from an IgG standpoint on that test and removing those items. Um, unless I start to see that there's that there's things lighting up all over the place. And then I'm more likely to focus on a general elimination diet, like I just mentioned. Those the big cor- five. The big yeah. five. And and be less specific about the positives that are showing up there. And the reason is it's really challenging to remove just about everything from somebody's diet. You can't. And if the cause of this is intestinal permeability and not a true immune activation issue happening, then it's easier to start with those big five that are most likely to be underpinning Mm -hmm. the intestinal permeability, get those under control, do the rest of the R's that we're going to talk about, and then come back and retest. Okay, so we've covered a lot of removing of things. Yeah. The next R is replace. What does that mean to you, Michael Chapman? Uh, I, it's weird. It's a weird word now that you say it. It's I know. Like replace, like I'm moving a lamp from one side of my <laughs> house to another or something is what I'm thinking of initially. Uh-huh. But when I think about the GI track, I'm thinking more so about supporting any of the functions that are working in an underwhelming way. Right. And so we're talking about, let's hypothetically say, again, you've done a GI effects. And, for example, their pancreatic elastase 1 is lacking. Mm -hmm. So to replace pancreatic enzymes and offer some pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy would be what is being referred to here as replace. Yeah, exactly. And and so... There's a few things that would be helpful on a stool test. Mm-hmm. You mentioned pancreatic elastase 1, that marker for exocrine pancreatic function. I also think about things like products of protein breakdown Ooh. to give me an understanding of how well protein's being digested and absorbed. And I think about the overall fecal fats uh, to determine whether fat is being well digested and absorbed. And that's going to help me tailor my treatment okay, so from let's a replace h- standpoint. Let's say hypothetically someone has really high products of protein breakdown, which means they're not fully breaking down and reabsorbing their protein. What would you replace there? When it comes to the digestion and absorption of protein, I think about two major players as far as chemicals go that are important, right? I think about HCL. Or hydrochloric acid. Right. And I think about proteases. And there are two different mechanisms. HCL is in your stomach. Proteases are more so in your small intestine. And I, I want to try to distinguish whether somebody needs one or both of those because there are two things that you can support. And so first and foremost, I, I start asking questions about whether somebody has hypochlorhydria. You want to talk a little bit about hypochlorhydria, what that is? Yeah, it's decrease. Your, your, your stomach has a decreased ability to make hydrochloric acid, the parietal cells in your stomach. And this can come from just getting older. 
right? Yeah. Or someone who's on a proton pump inhibitor, which in fact just kind of blocks the ability of the parietal to make And this is interesting, right? Because you come from the conventional world. Like, this is not a thing. It's not. And in fact, PPIs or proton pump inhibitors are given like water. And so that's not something they even think about. And the thing about hypochorhydria that I think about is, the thing I, the thing I think about that I think about is stress is a, has a big impact on decreasing digestive secretions. Um, you mentioned PPI use. There's aging, you mentioned, is another reason why we're not secreting mm-hmm. as much. Our, our stomach is not as acidic as it was. Um, but the irony here is that with hypochlorhydria, people can still get heartburn. And so the symptomatic presentation of too little stomach acid can often look like too much stomach acid. And this is because of the impact of acid on the lower esophageal sphincter and too little stomach acid actually leaves that, that opening open longer, uh, to allow for reflux. And so that's, that's kind of like the, the weird thing about this. So then you brought up proteases and by protease, you're referring to just enzymes that break down protein that are made right in your GI tract. Yeah. So how would you distinguish hypochlorhydria from a lack of various proteases? Uh, so that's a little tricky. And I, you know, there's no discrete protocol for being able to do this. What I tend to do is I'll ask questions that are, make me suspicious of maldigestion of protein specifically. And uh, some of the symptoms I think about are like mal- malodorous gas production, because when protein is improperly digested, it becomes fermented and creates this. Uh, and early satiety is a big one as well, along with a history of GERD. So early satiety with a history of GERD, I think, goes a little bit suspicious towards hypochlorhydria. And that's even tricky, too, because some of these patients with this history of GERD are often prescribed proton pump inhibitors for that reason. So lack of hydrochloric acid can cause a similar symptom to overproduction in these patients. So it's kind of hard to parse those two out. Now, let's say patient's not on a proton pump inhibitor. They have the symptoms you described. They have a history of GERD. What do you do? How are you going to give them hydrochloric acid, Michael? Well, there's a product called Betaine HCL. This is a supplement. And so a lot of clinicians will do what's called a HCL challenge. So they'll they'll give increasingly greater doses of this Betaine HCL to see if they get symptomatic improvement uh, up until the point where they start to actually experience a little bit of burning, and then they'll, they'll back it down and try them at that uh, dose for mm-hmm. a period of time. So you start with, you know, say one capsule, see if there's any burning in response to that. Then you can move up to two capsules, see if there's any response. And what you're wanting, what you're looking for is somebody who's actually digesting their food better. They're they're feeling better in general. Uh, Maybe they had some GERD and the GERD is no longer there. Like you're looking for that sweet spot after the introduction of betaine HCL. And I think important to note, not something you just start throwing at a patient willy-nilly. I mean, no. these can be very This dangerous. is not medical advice. Yeah, this is not medical advice. And in fact, if you're if you're unsure whether someone needs, you know, some type of hydrochloric acid or whether they should come off a proton pump inhibitor, that should probably discussed, be discussed with a gastroenterologist definitively. Yeah. So we're just talking about general 
concepts here. It's a tricky bit too. Like yeah. I was just having a conversation with family member about proton pump inhibitors mm-hmm. and it's there's a lot of people who are attempting to come off of proton pump inhibitors and they get rebound that's right. acidity. And that's really tricky to work through. So those need um, to be weaned over time. Yeah. Just important to note if if in, and patients can get these over the counter now. So that's important to note that you can get rebound unless you're weaned properly. So yeah. if you're unsure, the help of a gastroenterologist or a functional gastroenterologist would be great Good thing to see. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So We've talked now about replacing these digestive enzymes like betaine HCL, like you discussed, but there's also fats. Oh my god. So gosh. we know fats should be broken down and reabsorbed. And if you do the GIFX and someone has a really high level of fecal fats, that might be telling you they're not breaking down fats. And that's a whole different mechanism than protein. Yes. Uh, can to a certain degree be related to hypochlorhydria. It's possible. And here's mm-hmm. the mechanism. Fats require lipases and bile for digestion and absorption. Lipases help break down fats and your bile salts help you absorb fats, right? That's a maybe an oversimplification, but a decent one, I think. And so here again, if you see elevated fecal fats on the test, then I'll look at the breakdown of the fecal fats to give me a little bit of insight into whether I'm going to lean towards lipases or whether I'm going to lean towards bile salts. And that comes up all the time. Like, oh, what kind of enzyme am I giving, right? And so someone will say, am I giving something like lipase? Am I giving emylase? Am I giving creon? How do you make that distinction then? Yeah, how do you make that distinction? Do you use the actual individual fecal fats on the test to help you distinguish whether somebody should be taking a digestive enzyme or or a, a bile salt? Well, we think about the concept that some of the fecal fats give us more of an indication into maldigestion, some into malabsorption. Uh-huh. And we know that a lot of our dietary fats are triglycerides and cholesterol, and then they're broken down into things like long-chain fatty acids and phospholipids. So we often think about long-chain fatty acids and phospholipids as more of a malabsorption issue versus a maldigestion issue. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So you can look at the individual fats to get a little bit more insight into whether you're more likely to support with lipases as compared to bile salts. Although, you know, if you're a little bit unsure, probably not going to, it's not going to hurt to support with both. Mm-hmm. Um, and using a product that has digestive enzymes and some bile salts in combination together uh, probably would be a good idea there. That brings us to our number three. Oh, boy. Re-inoculate. Oh, yeah. Which kind of sounds weird, too, like you're inoculating someone with something. I think it sounds fancy. You do? Yeah, yeah, I really like it. Hmm. I, I like this re-inoculation. Now, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit presuming that maybe you removed something, like hmm. maybe you remove some commensal bacteria with step one. I don't know. It's hard to say, but uh, if Could you're be. re-inoculating, um, let's let's dig into it. Let's get it. Yeah. Let's yeah. <laughs> so let's say you removed something in step one by using an antimicrobial, understanding that it's not that targeted. Every time you give an antimicrobial, you might also wipe out some of the commensal bacteria. Oh, what you just said is so controversial. I can't believe you just said that. What are you talking about? <laughs> Botanical agents only wipe out bad bugs and they spare mm. all the good bugs. Oh, they, right. They, they're That's magical in the sense this that, is not true. that they... This is false. These are lies. No, I think the point we're making here is any antimicrobial agent has the potential to alter your microbiome. Yeah. And I don't think there's enough literature out there to necessarily make the claim that botanical agents... Uh, 
act all that differently than pharmaceutical agents, albeit they, they might be a little bit less powerful. And there might be some out there that do modulate the microbiome more than others, like the plantains, that it seems like they might have more of a, a microbiome modulation aspect as compared to a true antimicrobial aspect. So we know how important the commensal balance is. We measure various dysbiosis scores and dysbiosis patterns on the GI effects. Yeah. And so we're talking about re-inoculating. We're getting back to that concept of prebiotics and probiotics, fermented foods, things to help re-inoculate and balance and build the microbiome up in a healthier way. Yeah, you nailed it. And so... Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. If there's... If somebody has short-chain fatty acid problems... Uh-huh. On the on their gut test, what are you going to be thinking about? You're thinking of fiber and prebiotic resistant starches. Yeah, so that's going to help inoculate because it's coming from bacterial fermentation of fiber, so that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, if you see lower overall commensal abundance, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about a more balanced diet. You're thinking about probiotics actually as a supplement. You're thinking about fermented foods like sauerkraut, kefir, kimchi, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that's what I think about from a re-inoculation standpoint. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk out there about probiotics and whether they're good for just all people, whether everyone should be taking it, whether it's good for baseline or whether the literature is more so focused on disease conditions and how certain probiotics are great for certain diseases. So I think we need to understand that a little bit greater before we start recommending probiotics to every single person at all times. But for the purposes of a four hour protocol, makes sense. Yeah. And again, we've talked about this on the show in the past that we are in our infancy understanding probiotics. And so again, when we're talking about re-inoculation, these are the things we're talking about prebiotic and probiotic to try to achieve some type of balance. Yep. Which then brings us to the next R, mm-hmm. which is repair. And I'm really glad that they're <laughs> on the wall right behind me. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're everywhere <laughs> here at Genova. But the bigger point is we did an entire episode, I believe, early on regarding leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability. And we talked about this a little bit. But when it comes to intestinal permeability, it kind of ties back to the first R, the remove, right? Yeah. Because the things that cause intestinal permeability are offending foods yeah. or specific agents. And so you remove those, but then that leaves the still the repair of the gut in order right. to report, repair that intestinal permeability. Yeah. And when I think about repair, if we're getting to the root cause again, mm-hmm. it's what part needs to be repaired? Hmm. So do we need to, is there inflammation occurring? If so, what type of inflammation? Is it neutrophilic? Is it eosinophilic? Is there erosion to the mucus layer? Like these are the things when we're, when I'm thinking mechanistically about root cause medicine and repair that I want to get to, because I can tailor my treatments accordingly. Right. Right. Because there's anti-inflammatory things you can give. Yeah. Like omega-3s, for example, or quercetin. Some of these things are calming. But then what are some of the things you'd give to build back up? So I think about our mucilaginous uh, supplements. And that's going to help with, as it sounds like, the, the mucus, mucus layer of the yeah. GI tract. So that's our aloe. That's our slippery elm. That's our marshmallow or althea. Um, those are the things that are going to help build the mucus layer. Or you could think about inulin to help with levels of acromantia. And that's one way to address the mucus layer. You mentioned some of the anti-inflammatories that will address maybe more even neutrophilic inflammation, uh, 
But uh, then, but when we talk about neutrophilic inflammation, you might even have to go to heavier hitters from a pharmaceutical perspective to at least in the short term address that. But then there's other nutrient things too, like glutamine, there's, right? Yeah, absolutely. Glutamine is going to help with overall turnover of the epithelium. So it's really nutritive. It's supportive. It's not necessarily anti. I don't think of it as anti-inflammatory. No, it's more building it up. It's like the primary fuel source for some of these cells. And so glutamine will help to promote that, like you said, if there's cell turnover. Yeah. And there's other things like zinc carnosine that have been used periodically. There's licorice um, or DGL, which tends to be soothing as well. Um, aloe tends to be a little bit anti-inflammatory in nature, especially if you're talking about the aloe gel. Um, that's actually, it can even like do remarkable things for people who have ulcers and, and uh, other types of inflammatory conditions. So uh, those are some of the things I think about from a repair standpoint. Okay, so or in the past, there was this 4R protocol, and sure. we just left it there, right? <laughs> we were all in agreement. It's kind of like almost like you get to the point where you're like, okay, cassette tapes, CD players. Like Eventually, you just kind of call it a day. Right. But in IFM, they've now adopted the fifth R, yeah. which is rebalance. Correct. So how do you think about rebalance, Michael? Well, like with the rest of the R's, I don't tend to think of these in sequential order. Right. Right. Like I'm not going to be doing a four R protocol and in under no circumstance am I not going to be doing something from a repair standpoint. That's always going to be part of it. Like mm -hmm. maybe or maybe not I, I'm doing probiotics, you know, with their I'm doing less of their re-inoculation. But anyway, that's what I, I'm just trying to say that I'm not they're, they're not sequential. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all occurring simultaneously. And so if we're talking about root cause medicine, I think that last R is sort of getting back to the, uh, the other aspects of life mm -hmm. that can contribute to GI dysfunction. And so here they're talking about, um, you know, rebalancing your HPA axis. They're talking about rebalancing your exposure to toxins. So it's really just lifestyle, all the things go on with your life, like stress and your relationships and everything going on. So again, this is kind of the core of functional medicine in general that you're going to be promoting as you do these other R's. Yeah. And we actually even have a test where we can look at HPA axis dysfunction, the adrenal cortex stress profile. Right. And we've actually talked on the show several times about the, the parasympathetic sympathetic balance. And so that's always important. We've talked a lot about lifestyle med modification. And so that's kind of what's being referred to in this fifth R. Yeah. And one of the big ways that I think that the HPA axis can affect the gut is by its w uh, alterations of microbiome populations. We've seen that. Um, it seems that cortisol, through its effects on histamine, tend to in, uh, overall impact permeability issues. So it leads to greater permeability. Um, so that's all really interesting and just proof mechanistically for how the, uh, the HPA axis dysfunction can contribute to GI symptoms. So even as we talked about each of these R's, we referred back to other R's to kind of talk about them. So it really just does underscore the point of you don't do these in sequential order. They're all related. Compounding R's. <laughs> Are we coming up with a sixth R? Retest. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're going to be instigating all these treatments. And how are you going to know whether they're working? You're giving a digestive enzyme. How do you know whether that's improving their fat digestion? How do you know whether that's improving their protein digestion? You're giving prebiotics. How do you know that that's really translating to increases in short-chain fatty acids? What you want to know is right there on the test. So just consider retesting after maybe three to six months of your, your, your protocol. So we just came up with a sixth R. You think this will catch on? 
I think it should. <laughs> you know what else has caught on, though, Michael? What's that? <laughs> Your jingles have really been creating a buzz in the space. We're getting a lot of emails on how you've really stepped up your game in the jingle department. Well, I appreciate all those emails. You know, it's a <laughs> lot of hard work that goes into these on a regular lunch break. And, uh, you know, it's yeah. it's good to get positive Take feedback. The accolades, yep. It's good to get uh, a little bit of recognition for your hard work. And, I, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, it's all about sharing. You know, it's, it's important to share your creative endeavors with others wow. and um, to... Uh, I guess it's even more important to make sure that it's uh, it's not offending people. So. so after all that rambling, it's time for question of the day. Why did you go backwards? It's this one's the best one. It's not. It's the best one. I gave you all these accolades for how you've progressed in your jingling, and you go back to the original, <laughs> it's, it's really the bad one. one. Look, the original is always the best. So here's the question, Michael Chapman. What's that? We we came up with the sixth R, the retest. Yeah. How long do you wait before repeating the GI effects, or after an intervention, how long do you wait? Well, I think that your decision on when to retest is going to be dependent on the findings of the test. Um, and what I mean by that is that if you start to see some red flags, if you start to see some panic markers and you're trying to instigate a rapid treatment for that, so say you see higher levels of calprotectin or lower levels of pancreatic elastase um, and you are going to address that clinically, then I would repeat and say four weeks, two to four weeks, something like that, to see whether that is rapidly working. Because if not, you're probably going to be sending them to a gastroenterologist. So right. if there's more serious markers that you're showing up, you have a smaller window of time that you're probably going to repeat. What about if you're not talking about some of these more red flag panic markers, but uh, you are just but you find other findings on the test? What would you think as far as a repeat window? Yeah, we get this a lot too. And you think anytime you alter the microbiome, either by dietary changes or supplemental changes. The microbiome can actually fluctuate fairly quickly and rapidly. Sure. However, what we try to do is let, let the microbiome and the GI tract find a new normal. Um, and so oftentimes we say three to six months after any kind of intervention, whether that be digestive enzymes or altering the microbiome itself or treating a potential pathogen, for example. Yeah. Or if some new symptom comes up, of course, yeah, that's always be, symptom dependent. Yeah. You know, yeah. so you're going to be following symptoms and that's going to help guide you as far as when you think it's appropriate to retest. Nice. I think that about covers it for the for the R's. And, you know, I mean, there's there's more R's. There's out there. lots of R's. And this is such a basic concept of functional medicine that we really haven't hit yet, which is shocking. Yeah. But it comes up <laughs> on the phone and we speak to clinicians all the time. So it's important to cover. Yeah, I agree. Let's not feel bad about ourselves, though. I mean, right. let's have a little bit of grace. Aww. We can only do what we can do, Patty. It's true. We're only human. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. I feel much better, Michael. Humans on a ketogenic diet, <laughs> probably with electrolyte deficiency. But you think our brains would be on fire because of keto. Uh-huh. My rib hurts. <laughs> Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to add more R's to the protocol. Are we really? No, probably not. Probably just talk about something else, functional medicine. Yeah, or talk to somebody. All right. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 
888-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Having some beets for dinner. Who has beets for dinner besides you and Dwight Schrute? Beets are good, man. Yeah. What do you think of beets? You don't like beets? Mm, I don't ever choose to eat beets. I don't have you know had beets? You're sitting I, over here. I probably here have in my life. I can't talk. recall. How how can you not know whether you've had beets? They're beets. They have I, a very unique flavor yeah, to them. I don't have a recollection of eating beets. Then you've never had them. You've never had know. beets. You're judging me. There's for a lot of things I don't beets. remember. I'm just wondering, like, who says I'm having beets for dinner besides you and Dwight Schrute? Beets are tremendously helpful. Okay. Lots of betaine. That's right. Hence the name. And vitamin C. And lots of Good. They're scary the next day. Yeah. Which you wouldn't understand because no. you've never had beets. Well, you can tell me all about it tomorrow. <laughs>